He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in, in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and blameless and above reproach before him if indeed you continue in the faith stable and steadfast not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which i paul became a minister you know there are a couple of passages in the new testament that are considered you know, the benchmark statements on Christology or the doctrine of Christ. These are statements that are, are so filled with meaning and impact and power that uh, you go to them if you're talking to someone perhaps who is a member of a cult but denies some aspect of the deity of Christ. One of those we looked at back in Advent. We studied John chapter 1, the first half of John chapter 1, in depth during Advent. But this morning's passage is another of those two or three, maybe it's the top benchmark statement, uh, Christological statement in the scriptures about the doctrine of Christ. It's a, a passage that we need to understand. Frankly, I wish I could give two or three messages to it. It deserves that many, to be honest. But then we'd be here till August in Colossians, and we don't want to do that. So, um, But it is important that we understand it, especially if we want to to be ambassadors for Christ, to represent Christ well to those who don't know him. And that's becoming more challenging in our society today. Uh, our, our covenant group was just speaking of this uh, on Wednesday night, the challenges that we face as Christians, really even compared to past generations. And what we concluded was that living out our faith in our, uh, our uh, relativistic, multicultural uh, post-Christian society is something that would have been very familiar to the Colossian church. In fact, as we talked about it, we, we, came to, we concluded that if you compare the cultural and spiritual environment that our grandparents grew up in, that we would actually have more in common today with the Colossians than we would with our grandparents. And, and all of the data supports this. Uh, and it's becoming even more vivid that this is the case. So, for example, just last year, a, a, a poll, a survey was conducted by Probe Ministries where they found that 60% of professing born-again Christians who are in the age range of 18 to 39 years of age, professing born-again Christians in that age group, 60% uh, believe that Jesus, Muhammad, Buddha are all equal avenues towards salvation and heaven. 
Uh, when asked if Jesus sinned uh, like we do, uh, 30% of them said yes. Back in 2020, uh, Legionnaire Ministries commissioned a, a massive theological study of our nation through Lifeway Publishing. And what that study revealed was that 52% of Americans believed that Jesus was a great teacher, but you know, no, he was not God. He was just a man. And in that study, um, other things that came out about the evangelical church, which, of which we are a part of in our tradition, is that one-third of evangelicals believe that Jesus was merely a great teacher. Um, now, thankfully, 65% of them rejected that and said, no, he was more than a great teacher. He's God. So that was good news. But in a follow-up question, 65% of evangelicals also said that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. And that's why you need Christology, because of those misunderstandings that occur. The Colossians were being assured by the false teachers that Jesus was important, but there's more that's needed. If you wanted a full life, if you wanted to have a, a sense of vitality and vibrance, a full life here and in the, in the world to come, then, yeah, certainly, listen to what Jesus says. He, he has God in him, but he's just one rung in the ladder that you need to climb in order to get that life that you want now and in eternity. He's just one of many divine beings. Now, this passage that we're studying this morning, as I mentioned, it's a benchmark passage. In fact, there's been volumes and volumes and volumes of books written just on this passage right here that, we're re that we read a few moments ago. The, uh, one of the things that has been debated back and forth, there's a large group of scholars for about the last 150 years that believe that uh, portions of this passage, especially verses 15 to 18, uh, that in those verses, Paul borrowed from an early hymn of the early church. And so he's taken lyrics from that hymn and he's brought them into this passage because perhaps it's spread across the Mediterranean world and it was words that would have been familiar to the Colossian Christians. Now, there's also a group of scholars that say, no, no, there's no evidence really for that. That's, that's going too far. You can't justify that. But here's the thing, both groups agree that this passage is central to understanding the entire book of Colossians. It gives us the theme of the book, and we've reflected that theme in the title of this morning's message and the title, actually, of the entire series, which is Christ Preeminent. This passage teaches us something important about Jesus and his preeminence. At all the attributes and activities of God, they are centered in Christ. Therefore, he is preeminent over everything and everyone. So we're going to jump into this passage. We're going to look at this idea of preeminence. And as we break it down, we're going to see the scope of Christ's preeminence, the basis of that preeminence, and our experience of that preeminence. So let's Let's think about this scope and this idea that Jesus rules supreme over everything that Paul gives us in the first three verses. In these first three verses, he, he puts before us some essential truths, really three primary ideas about Jesus that support this idea that he's supreme over everything and everyone. 
That this is the, that the scope of his preeminence isn't just like he has a little portion of authority. No, it's all authority. And he gives us three kind of pictures of Jesus. The first is in that very opening phrase, he is the image of the invisible God. He's telling us that Jesus is the supreme revealer of God. That word image has a couple of meanings. One idea, one meaning is likeness. Uh, that Jesus is like uh, the likeness of God, not in the material, physical sense, because God is invisible. We've never seen God, and he does not have a corporal body. So it's not in a material sense, but in every, the ways that most matter, Jesus is the likeness of God. The author of Hebrews says it like this, he is, Jesus is, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Image as likeness. Think of a, a mirror. You, we all stood in front of a mirror this morning, probably, just to make sure that everything was okay before we came to church, right? And when you look in that mirror, what did you see? You're not, come on. Yeah, yourself, right? It wasn't a trick question. What did you see? You, you, you saw yourself, right? If you saw anything other than yourself, you know, you're in Stranger Things world or something that was going on. Right? You saw yourself. The mirror gives you a likeness, a reflection of yourself. And, and this is what we have with Jesus. When you look at Jesus, Jesus looks like God. And God looks like Jesus. This is what the apostle, uh, or this is what Jesus said to the apostles in John chapter 14 when he was telling them that he would be dying and he would be going to heaven and they're all upset and distressed and they didn't know the way to God and, and who is God? What is God? And, and Jesus says to them, have I been with you so long that you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the what? Father. So this is image as likeness. But there's another idea behind this word image. It's the idea of manifestation or revelation. Jesus is the revealer of God. He perfectly reveals the nature of God, the attributes of God, the being of God with all of his characteristics. I mentioned that other passage Christological passage. We studied it back in Advent, John chapter 1. In that passage, you find in verse 18, the apostle saying, no one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side, speaking of Jesus here, he has made him known. Jesus is the revealer of the heavenly Father, the invisible God. We think to ourselves that God is love. Well, how do you know that? You've not seen God the Father. You've seen him in Jesus. Jesus reveals the love of God. Jesus is the perfect revelation of God's power, of his glory, of his holiness, of his grace, of his mercy. All the attributes of God, you find Jesus revealing them. So when we think about the scope of God, Jesus' preeminence, that he rules supreme over everything and everyone, we can see why this would be the case because he's the revealer of God. We can see why this is the case because Jesus is the supreme creator and the sustainer of the old creation. When I say old creation, I mean the universe as we know it. Everything that we know, Jesus is the creator and sustainer of the old creation. It says that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. We've got to stop right there. 
I mean, even my, my, my small group, every group I've ever, that, that, that right, oh, okay. That's why 65% of evangelicals polled said Jesus was the first and greatest created being of God. They come to that word and they go, oh, so Jesus was born. That's not what firstborn means. That's not the underlying Greek word does not mean that there was a time where Jesus didn't exist and then God created him. God the Father created the Son like, you know, my sons were created because of me, you know. No, not at all. That's not what the idea here is. Our translation doesn't, you know, our translation stays very literal, which is good, but sometimes when we come to passages like this, it works against us. Other passages, other translations, they take that word and they bring it into modern English. New Living Translation captures the idea of firstborn. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God, and here's that word firstborn. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. That's what the word firstborn means. It has this idea that, uh, and it's communicating the idea that Jesus is eternal. He existed before creation, and therefore it, it, it represents why he is supreme over all creation, because he's eternal. He was there before anything ever was. He's supreme because he existed prior to everything that is and everyone who ever has been or will be. He always has been. That is the definition of God. God is eternal. It's one of those attributes that only God can have. And so Jesus was here prior to everything. And he's supreme because he rules over the creation as its sovereign creator. These next several verses kind of illustrate why his supremacy of cre uh, as creator is so real and so vivid. This is one of the most beautiful passages. We, we reflected it in the, in the prayer this morning, which I appreciated that Paxson brought these ideas into our prayer this morning, corporate prayer. For by him, just listen to this language, for by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. What an incredible wording there, a passage. And, and think about what the false teachers were saying to the Colossians. They were saying that besides Jesus... There are other spiritual beings between us and God the Father that we should interact with, that we should appeal to. Um, Colossae, for example, loved the idea of angels. Uh, they had a patron angel for their city, uh, Michael the Archangel. Supposedly back in history, a catastrophe was happening to Colossae, and in the middle of that catastrophe, they saw Michael the Archangel appear and stop the catastrophe. And so they worshiped, Michael the archangel as one of those spiritual beings and they encouraged this kind of, of worship. It's very, very similar to what many of us have experienced when we are encouraged to, to appeal to the Virgin Mary or to the saints that have gone by. I mean, just had St. Patrick's Day, right? And, and you, you pray to the saints and beseech them to appeal and intercede to God on our behalf. And this is what was happening in Colossae. They were, they were essentially saying that Jesus is good 
but there's more that you need. There's more beings that you should have in your repertoire of spirituality. There's more ideas besides the gospel that you need to be embracing so that you truly access God the Father and have a full spiritual life. These are the same concepts being presented to us today. Jesus is good. He's just not sufficient. Jesus is one of those great teachers you should listen to, but he's not the only great teacher. I mean, how narrow-minded is that? And Paul's answer to all of this is that Jesus has a dignity and a power and a worthiness and a glory that if you took everyone, everything, every being that has ever been in existence, that's in existence right now, will be in existence in the future, if you took all of those entities, human, non-human, whatever, all the things of this world, you took all of their combined worth, glory, power, significance, and you added all of that up, it still would not equal the significance and the worth and the integrity and the worthiness and glory of Jesus Christ. He is fully God. He's the supreme creator. And his proof that this is who Jesus is as he looks at creation and says, everything that is here is because of him. And by the way, if he ever decides to turn in his resignation, it all goes poof. It all goes away. Jesus is the one who turned chaos into a cosmos and gave us this creation. But that's not all. Not only is he supreme creator, sustainer of the old creation, he's the sovereign Lord and the source of the new creation. In verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn. There's our word again. The firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. You know, these survey, the data shows that even those who like Christ and Jesus don't like his church for various reasons some of them are valid church is filled with sinners i mean just look to the person next to you they're a sinner right you'd agree with me especially if you're married to them you know that but what does it say about the church that paul points to its existence as proof of jesus's supremacy how valuable is the church when you consider what Paul is saying here. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. In other words, he is the first person to be resurrected who has never died. Other people were resurrected before Jesus, but they all ended up ultimately dying. Jesus, in his resurrection, his ascension, and his exaltation, he is the firstborn. He is the prototype of what our resurrection is also going to be like. And with that resurrection, the new creation is born, and he's bringing it about. Jesus is the creator of the church, the one who will make all things new, who will bring into existence the eternal kingdom of God. He's the origin and the life of the church, the source of its very being. What pretender put before the Colossians can make that claim? None. But in our day, what contender for the 
affections of our own hearts can compete with the sovereign Lord of the church, the creator, the source of the new heavens, the new earth that he promises to one day bring fully into fruition when he returns for us. All of the contenders for the affections of our hearts, whatever it appears like it may be, whether it's our careers, our toys, our image to the world, our children, our success, our basketball team that gets knocked out in March Madness, I mean, whatever it may be that you is contending for the affections of your heart, they don't hold a chance when you compare it to Jesus. So what does it say about us? that we so easily turn from the source of the new creation and embrace those false contenders. It really reveals how badly we need Jesus. That the depth of our sin is so pervasive. I mean, how idiotic is it to, is it to trade in the temporal things of this world in place of the eternal creator God, who sustains everything, who's supreme over everything and everyone. How idiotic is that? But that's what sin does to us. It makes really smart, good-looking people like us total idiots. <laughs> that's what it does. The scope of his preeminence. Jesus rules over everything. How about the basis of his preeminence? What we see in the next few verses is that Jesus makes the invisible God, knowable. When you look at why is Jesus preeminent, supreme over everything and everyone, he makes that invisible God knowable so we can have a personal relationship with him. And the words that he uses here, there are just two concepts. First, that Jesus is the fullness of God. The fullness of God resides, permanently dwells in Jesus. Verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Again, I told you volumes have been written about this passage. This verse has multiple, multiple chapters. What does that mean? You know, scholars like to say, what does that mean? What does it mean that all the fullness? And what is the fullness? And what does that word dwell mean? You know, and, and I mean, you can just go down, you know, Alice in Wonderland, go down the rabbit hole. But it is an important question to ask. You know, some land and say what this is talking about is that when God the Father sent Jesus, they see it as a reference to the incarnation. God the Father was pleased to send Jesus to earth with all the richness of his attributes like love and grace and mercy. Others have written extensively, believe that this is referring to the deity of Jesus, that he is fully God. One of the esteemed and, and really wonderful theologians of the 19th century from England was a guy by the name of J.B. Lightfoot, and he paraphrased this by saying that in him the totality of divine powers and attributes permanently resided, and that it's a strong statement to the deity of Jesus Christ, that he's not a God, he is God. But remember, and, and by the way, those two ideas, the incarnation and what life is, certainly those this statement isn't less than those two ideas. But if you remember, I mentioned to you last week, or maybe it was the week before, that we needed to pay attention to one word as we go through the book of Colossians. Anybody remember what the word is? Okay, so that really made an impact on you. Um, 
I knew that. That's okay. It's the word fullness. Full. Fully. Fulfilled. You see it throughout the book of Colossians. Uh, do y'all remember what that one word was that I told you you needed to pay attention to? What was it? Oh. There you go. Man, y'all are so smart on the ball. Thank you. And here you have it again, the fullness of God. And that word is important. It's critical to understanding the Colossians, what was going on in their church and in their city and why Paul wrote this letter. The false teachers, as I mentioned a moment ago, weren't saying that Jesus wasn't important. They, were deni- they weren't even denying that his divine origins. They weren't denying God's presence in their life. They were denying his supremacy. They were denying his preeminence. They were denying his sufficiency. He's just one of many divine beings. He's just one of many sources of truth. He's like Buddha or Muhammad or fill in the blank. Sounds familiar. Again, we have more in common with the Colossians than we do perhaps even our own grandparents in our context. Church, all the fullness of God permanently resides in Jesus. All of God's attributes, all of God's work, all of God's power and glory are centered in him. That's what this passage is saying. This is the basis for why we should believe he's supreme over everyone and everything. And there are no contenders for that throne. One book that I've read as a devotional is by Dr. Brian Harbour. On this verse, he writes this. Sorry, a little bit behind on my clicking there. There is nothing about God, no quality of God, no attribute of God, no provision of God that is not present in and available through Jesus Christ. The basis of this preeminence is his fullness, the fullness of God in Christ. This, the basis is the redemptive ministry, verse 20, of Jesus Christ. Through him, to rec- and through him, to reconcile all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. There are important reasons why the Apostle Paul first established the supremacy of Jesus in creation and being the revealer of God and the source of the new creation and why he's the fullness of God in bodily form. Why, why did he, there's a reason why he did that. And, there, and, and now this is, this is where it's at. What Jesus does for us, as explained in these verses, is the result of who he is. Only Jesus has the credentials and the qualifications necessary to heal the breach between us and the Father that our sin has created. Our sin has put us in a state of war against God in our natural state. We come into this world screaming at our mamas and screaming at God spiritually, at war with God, hostile in our mindset, in our worldview, in the way we live our lives, contradicting God's holiness and God's will for our life. That's who we are. And this passage is telling us that only through Jesus and his cross 
This is what can bridge the gulf that exists between every human being who's been born and God the Father. Only Jesus is qualified to heal our broken relationship with God and bring peace to us where there was once hostility. We cannot do this for ourselves. The very best day that we have is still a day filled with hostility, anger, hatred, and rebellion against God. Our sin is that pervasive. As we pointed out a moment ago, our sin is so deep, we are idiots in, our, in, in adopting something that is just a trinket compared to the glory of our relationship with Jesus Christ. And we'll grab onto the trinket rather than what we already have in Jesus. That's the power of sin. We can do absolutely nothing to save ourselves, nothing to bridge that gap, to bring peace between us and God, the Father. No one else can do this for us, only Jesus. And this is why Paul says, he, this is why he's preeminent. This is why he's supreme over everything and everyone, because what he does is the result of who he is. He's the one qualified who has their credentials to make peace between us and God. Do you have that peace? Do you have that peace with God the Father? Is there a joy in your life that is yours because you have a vital relationship with Jesus Christ and it's changed how you relate to God the Father? Do you have that peace? If you don't have it, do you want it? Do you want that peace? Do you sense that there is something wrong in your life that you have tried any number of things to address? You've turned to any number of, of ways to make that thing that's wrong with you go away and it's still there, it will not disappear. Do you want that peace? Well, the good news is it's available in Jesus. Jesus is the only place that you can go, the only person you can turn to where this peace can be obtained, where you, your relationship with your creator, God, can be reconciled and restored. In a few moments, we're going to be taking the Lord's Supper. If you don't have this peace and you want it, when those of us who have committed our life to Christ are taking this meal, I want to encourage you, where you sit right now, you don't take the meal because this is me the meal for those who have that peace, who've committed their life to Christ. But instead, while we eat this meal, where you're sitting right now, just bow your head and, and pray. Confess, I'm a sinner. And I cannot save myself. Confess, Jesus, I want my sins forgiven. Confess, Jesus, I cannot save myself. Would you rescue me from my sin? Jesus, would you give me this peace that I need? Jesus, I commit my life to you. You can leave this room differently than the way you came in this morning. If you will simply recognize the preeminence of Christ and what he alone can give you. There's the, the scope of his preeminence, the basis of his preeminence. Now, how about our experience of his preeminence? In verses 22 
the last half of that verse in 23, we see that Jesus sanctifies the sinners that he saves. He writes, he's died for us, he's allowed his body to be crushed on the cross to reconcile us to God in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. In a moment, we are going to enjoy the Lord's Supper at this table. This table, in a sensible, physical, tangible way, proclaims what we just talked about under the basis of his preeminence, that, that Jesus is the only one who can reconcile us to God. And the way he did that is through his broken body on the cross, the shed blood that he poured out upon the cross. This is the price for us to have peace with God. This table reminds us of what Jesus has done for us, that he has presented us to the Father as holy, consecrated, saved, rescued sinners, that we've been justified by Jesus Christ. And this table reminds us of our justification. It reminds us that only through Jesus can the invisible God be knowable. But the table is also an important means by which Jesus sanctifies and builds up and strengthens those of us who have experienced salvation through him. These final verses Again, it, we have a translation thing. It, they, they can be a little confusing, and it's due to the translation. It seems to be saying in these verses, if you go back and you look at them, it seems to be saying here that Jesus intends to present you holy and blameless before God, but this is only going to happen if you successfully complete your end of the bargain. you got to do your part in order for that to actually happen. You can read it like that. And in fact, some turn to a passage like this and they scratch their head and they say, oh, so you mean we can actually lose our salvation? We can be saved and then we lose it because you know this passage here says, if you, and that's casting doubt upon it. <coughs> Excuse me. This isn't the case at all. The original language that Paul is using in this passage, it is filled with assurance and confidence. And in fact, just in later on in the book, the ESV is going to translate these same words and construction in a way that has no concept of that it's not going to happen, that it's possible that it couldn't happen, that it's an if, well, maybe it will, maybe it won't. So it's a translation thing. And so I, I don't want us to walk away from this thinking that Paul is trying to say, you know, Jesus does his part and then we do our part and that's how we get to heaven one day. That's not it at all. Jesus has presented us past tense. It's been done. When we belong to him, we are declared righteous before God. That is a done deal. It is signed, sealed, and delivered. And it was signed in his blood, church. And it's never going to be undone. This passage is not saying, if you do your part, then you'll be okay one day. No, this passage is saying, since Jesus has done his part, we are going to be okay one day. 
And I don't know translation gets it right. Um, I want us to read this together. I want to read verse 22. Now listen, some of you are a little sleepy. I can tell because, you know, you, you couldn't remember full and fully. <laughs> and so I want you to wake up, and, and here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read verse 22, and then we're all going to read verse 23 out loud. Now listen, I know, you know, technically we're a Presbyterian church, but there are times when it's okay for us to be a little charismatic, okay? And this is one of them. And so when I want us to read verse 23 out loud together, and I want you to read it. I want you to put emotion in your voice. I want you to put the emotion of assurance, of confidence, of absolute, buddy, this is, this is a done deal. You get where I'm coming from, okay? So I'm going to read verse 22, and then I'm going to give you a chance to redeem yourself from not getting that easy question I asked you earlier, and we're going to read verse 23, okay? Here we go. But now, by giving himself, and this is Eugene Peterson's translation in contemporary English. But now, by giving himself completely at the cross, actually dying for you, Christ brought you over to God's side and put your lives together whole and holy in his presence. Here's your big moment. You ready? Here we go. You don't walk away from a gift like that. Good job. You stay grounded and steady in that bond of trust constantly tuned in to the message, careful not to be distracted or diverted. There is no other message, just this one. Good job. Give yourself a hand. All right, I like that. That's awesome. <clears throat> that is what this passage is saying. And the table here is Jesus' gift to us where he reminds us that he alone saves us and he alone is our source of strength as we seek to live for God in our fallen world. And most importantly, what these final verses are saying is that Jesus alone guarantees that the end of our story will be eternal peace with our Heavenly Father. And that is a story worth sharing to our world today. The table is God's, Jesus' gift to us. And as we move to it, we recognize that it's a sacred moment. The Apostle Paul tells us that a person should examine himself or herself before eating this meal and to confess sin that may be in our lives that we have not yet confessed. Perhaps we're holding on to it, we're coddling it, we're enjoying it. Perhaps it's a grudge against someone else that we're refusing to forgive them. Uh, perhaps it's, you know, you had a meltdown on your way to church this morning. It happens. And yet you say things that you regret and that you know were not right. And so let's start, just like we wash our hands, or at least we were taught to wash our hands before we eat, right? And we should wash our hands. Let's wash up. And if you would, bow your heads. And I'm going to give you a moment just to pray. Ask the Holy Spirit to bring to your mind any sin that may be in your life that you've yet to confess. Bow your heads and spend a few moments alone with God.